0: Hello and welcome to the Slow Home podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast paced world. My name's Brooke McCallery.
1: And <laughs> <laughs> my name is Ben McCallery. Welcome to episode two hundred and fifty-three. So
0: big thank you to everyone, first of all, first off, for your uh, messages of, of kindness and understanding after we dropped your an patience episode last week. Yeah, and your yeah. patience. Yeah. It's been it's been it's been a ride, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> We've had a few technical issues. We've lost three recordings because of different recording equipment issues over the past few weeks.
1: And now our main recorder—it looks like it's on its way out. Yes. So it's all. So we're rolling with it. Fun and games.
0: We are rolling with it on this this grand adventure, but uh, it's just been something that we, as I mentioned on Instagram when I said that last week's episode wasn't coming out, this is something that we have just decided to roll with. It's in a pretty intense period as it is, uh, travelling and touring and working and schooling and all the rest of it. Uh, so your understanding is so much appreciated. Very I couldn't much.
1: even tell you. Absolutely. So this episode, you recorded it in Brooklyn.
0: I did. I recorded with the absolutely wonderful human that is Jess Davis from Folk Rebellion and I recorded it at the Prospect Lefferts uh, bookstore, Greenlight. Yeah, uh, yeah their, their branch of Greenlight Bookstores, which is such a beautiful bookstore. If you're in the area, if you're from Brooklyn, go and check it out. We only
1: spent 24 hours in, in New York. We did. Greater New York and loved every minute of it. It's we the did. only big city that I love.
0: Right. Yeah. There's something very unusual about New York. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was great. We, we did it. We hit the high notes, I think. We
1: did. We did.
0: <laughs> in about three hours. We hit the Natural History Museum. We hit the uh, Central Park subway. We saw the Statue of Liberty out the car window. <laughs> exactly. Nailed it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we tilted well into to New York for that 24-hour period. Now, you do a few things with Jess, don't you?
0: Yes. So, Jess, as you probably know, I have interviewed Jess previously on the podcast and I will link to that in the show notes, but she is also the editor-in-chief of The Dispatch, which is a fantastic monthly newspaper. That is dedicated to slow living. It's dedicated to living a rebellious life, unplugging, switching off, getting into nature, living in accordance with your values. Jess is an absolute champion and advocate for living well Yeah. in a fast-paced world. Yep. And it's the first time I actually got a chance to meet her in, in person. It was just, yeah, it was as, as great as you had hoped.
1: Really nice. As I had hoped. Yeah.
0: Um, also as you had hoped maybe. So we sat down and we chatted. Uh, she interviewed me and I interviewed her and we just had a great conversation about what slow living looks like, uh, why it's important, why balance the idea of work-life balance is, is a myth. We answered a lot of questions as well from people in the audience. It was wonderful. I do want to say the apologist in me wants to mention that you're you're going to hear a few things in these live recordings that... You, like you, you hear I've heard before. multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. And that's because they're recordings that are being done in front of an audience of people, many of whom don't know what slow living is. So there are things that you will hear a number of times. It's always different. But I, I do just want to say that I'm not being repetitive for re- repetition's sake. It's just a brand new audience of people and we're trying to introduce them to what slow looks like.
1: And I must say you do try very hard to make them all different. I do. Just so you're not bored yourself.
0: Well, yeah. Yeah.
1: And so they are all slightly different. But what I will say is in October, we will actually record one of Brooke's standalone talks, and that will be her straight book talk and something that I know a lot of people probably wanted to come to a a book tour stop Mm -hmm. that haven't. And so I think by the end of it, it would be quite nice just to have that for prosperity's sake of this was the main book talk that you gave. Sure. So we'll, we'll attempt to do that in October, bearing in mind that our recording equipment... May or is may not survive. still surviving. Mm-hmm. So before we get into the conversation, did you want to talk a little bit about next month's experiment?
0: Absolutely. Uh, so it kicks off 1st of September, as always, and the episode one of that experiment isn't sort of till the 5th or 6th of September. So for anyone who wants to join in, I really just wanted to go... Into what it entails quickly, and essentially, we are doing mindful moments in September. So as you know, we are living, we are tilting heavily into a really full-time in our lives at the moment, with the book tour. Ben, you're working still full-time. The kids are in school, and we're yeah. traveling. Yeah right? That is not slow, but it is something that we've chosen to do, and we're tilting into, and it serves a purpose. But that has also meant that we need to be really, really, really specific with our mindfulness attempts. And I thought it would be a great opportunity to actually dive into four different mindfulness techniques that anyone, regardless of how busy and full your life is, can apply to their day every day. Yeah. Like we're, we're living that full intense kind of period at the moment. So what can we do? And then what can we encourage everyone else to do, regardless of how busy their days are? to be mindful. So there's four techniques, there's four episodes. Uh, next week, we're talking all about breathing, mindful breathing exercises that you can do in two to five minutes. Uh, and we'll go from there. Absolutely. So as always, hashtag slow experiment. We're keen
1: to have you look forward to next week. Yeah. Getting that started.
0: Exactly. It's really just kind of being very realistic about what mindfulness can look like
1: in, in a busy time. In the meantime, enjoy this episode.
0: So how, how, do you, how do you live mindfully?
2: What does that look like? For me, mm. personally, um, so it's probably different than what most people would expect the definition to be. Um, I operate very much with a sort of rebellious way of living and I just do what makes me feel good and I don't worry about what other people think or say and maybe that's because I'm older, maybe that's because I've learned what's more important. It's because I've fallen down so many times that I understand that by not paying attention and protecting myself, nobody else is going to. Um, I don't. I've, it's this sort of question everything approach uh, that when I look at a website which often features me, which I'm very grateful for, and our work, am I just consuming all of this information because somebody else is telling me to do something better and it's making me feel better in the moment, but it's not making me really make, it's just Mm -hmm. another thing, you know? And so I have to go back to what makes me happy and I have my core values and it is owning my time, it is my child, it is nature, it is music, it is reading. Mm -hmm. Does any of this that I'm reading on this website right now or this new thing that I'm buying help any of those five things? Right. Truly. And if it doesn't, then I have to remind myself to put it aside.
0: How did you arrive at your core values? Because I feel like that's something that a lot of people want and we may have some kind of rough idea of what it looks like, but how did you arrive there? Well,
2: they change, Um, but Jackie Carr, who we actually both know, I actually did a workshop with her and I've done them a few times and I've noticed that they shift. Um, One that I didn't mention, which is actually my number one core value is freedom. And so that's freedom of time, freedom of business, freedom of travel, just in any way, shape or form. But I took this list of like a hundred words and just kept editing down what felt good to me until you get down to 20. Then you get down to ten, and then you have to pick five, which is like the hardest thing in the in the world. And there's the idea that, and Jackie has actually said this. You know, the word is organized on there. Well, in my head, like I want to be organized. I idolize the people that are organized. It is my dream that I'm always striving to one day be an organized person. But I'm not that. Right. And so I had to be honest. And when push came to shove, you end up with your five, and I have them hanging in my house in a few different spots as constant reminders because. Well, there's so much out there that's trying to distract us and uh, I have to just always come back home. Right and you use it as a like a reminder if Mm -hmm. you're weighing
0: up a decision that you want to make or an action that you would like to take or not take something to say yes to or no to. Well
2: it's the same thing in in marketing. I guess it's taking what I've done in marketing for my entire career and actually using those pillars or those filters for my own life and my own well-being. Right? Because you do it for brands or business. Does this ladder up? Does this live up? Does it pass all the filters? Why am I not doing that in my own life? <laughs> That's a good question. Right?
0: <laughs> so I came to a similar set of core values through a slightly, slightly different approach. So as uh, Nicholas was saying, I was diagnosed with postnatal depression severely after my second baby was born. Uh, and my mental health was appalling by the time I was diagnosed. And I spent a lot of time with a psychiatrist who actually was the person to introduce me to this idea of slow living because so I would sit there and I would complain to her about how busy I was. Meanwhile, never changing anything, right? I was just telling her all these things that I had to do in order to be the person who got stuff done. Like, that was my identity. I wanted to be the person my friends would say, I don't know how you, how you manage it all. You know, that was important to me. And she listened to me for months and eventually asked me, why don't you just do less? Is that an option? (laughs) Is that something that I can actually do? Uh, And that's where I discovered slow living. But what I, I found was as I went through the process of simplifying my life, starting with my stuff, like I decluttered intensely for about a year, and that shook loose so much stuff in my head, in my spirit that I didn't recognize I'd been carrying around. And after about a year of that, I was looking for the deeper reason Like, why am I doing this? What am I standing to gain by letting go of this stuff? And I ended up writing my own eulogy to figure this out. I sat down and I wrote a brief version of my eulogy when I was 31. I had not spent any time thinking about my death when I was 31 years (laughs) old, but I I realised at the same time, as you were saying, I hadn't been thinking about the way I was spending my life either. And that's terrifying, right? Because we realize at some point what we do with our days, with our minutes, with our hours is what we do with our years. And what we do with our years adds up to a life. So I had the same thing. I mean, so Jess has her core values and I have my, my four-sentence eulogy. And I refer back to that all the time. I don't. Know, would you guys like me to read it? It's yes. in the book. Yes. All right. <laughs> I will read it for you. So the thing that I found really interesting as I sat down to write this eulogy was not only the words that I was imagining people saying, but who I imagined them saying, who I imagined saying them, and who they were saying them to. Uh, and that was just as important, if not more important than the words. Uh, anyway. Quick to laugh, creative, compassionate, with a wicked sense of humor. Mum was never without a new plan or adventure on the horizon. She made one hell of an old-fashioned, was spontaneous. Loyal, introspective, and believed wholeheartedly that we all have a responsibility to leave the world a better place than we found it. Mum, we will miss you always. Thank you for our roots, but thank you even more for our wings. Thank you. Uh, and I use that in exactly the same way. You know, I check in anytime I have a big decision to make, anytime I have a conversation that's going to be difficult because I know someone's going to be disappointed with my answer. That's my motivation. That's the reason that I give to them or to myself for making those choices. And I think that intention is at the heart of, of that. And the funny thing is I, I wrote that and it felt amazing because I felt like finally I knew why I was making these changes. I knew what I stood to gain if by simplifying, by decluttering, by saying no, by learning to, to slow down the pace of life. Uh, and that felt wonderful for about a minute because I realised that if I was living, continued to live the way I had been at that point when I wrote that eulogy, would my kids say that about me at the end? And the answer was no, because there was so much that I wasted my time and my energy on in life that wasn't any of those things. I didn't even drink Old Fashions when I wrote that. (laughs) I don't know why it made it in, but that was the person I wanted to be at the end, right? Right, exactly. I do now. (laughs) So... I think that the next question is, I mean, it's like it's great to have intention, it's great to have a set of core values, but when life is busy and full, how do we make time for them? So, I mean, what does that look like for you on a day-to-day basis? How do you make time for the important things when life's
2: full? Well, I'm I already told you I'm not a super organized person. I'm also not very good at planning. I like to fly by the seat of my pants and Uh, I just wrote something where I said I'm often the person outside in the middle of a storm without an umbrella because I don't think to look forward and see what the weather is. So for me, it is finding space throughout the day because every day can be different. In one minute, I could be traveling. I could be going to Boston and flying back in that one moment, or I could be home with my son, or I could be rushing around. Yesterday, I had a very, very busy day, a very fast-paced day, but it was a actually a slow living day right. because I was fully present throughout the entire day. And so I found things that work for me and create space. So the only thing that I do plan is my time to slow down. And if I look at it an entire day, I kind of chop it up as to where are those moments, actual little moments that I can create just a little bit of space away from all the things that are clawing for my attention. And the things that work for me that make me feel really good and really present is usually in nature. We live here and people will say you can't find it. It is as simple as sitting on a park bench. This is stuff that we know. The thing that has actually developed in recent years that is my most favorite thing is walking. And I walk and I walk without my phone And I always pick new streets and new neighborhoods. And it reminds me of my mother and my grandmother. And we all just used to walk for the joy of it. And now I'm doing it and I'm doing it more regularly. And the things that I'm discovering and I'm teaching my son to do it. And it's just that time of, it kind of combines the wandering without the planning. Mm -hmm. Because you don't really have a destination and what you discover on the way. The other thing is music. It always kind of stops time for me if I'm feeling on the subway, very fast paced like I always have my music list. So it's just these little bit of bits of moments versus remaining unplugged and off of a computer for 4 days in a row. That's lovely and great and we would all feel amazing afterwards, but it's not sustainable. Exactly. So it's just those those little pieces throughout the day.
0: Right. I love the 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 flâneur, you know, the French art of the flâneur, which <laughs> is like a neighborhood wandering. Yeah. You don't have to be in nature, you don't need to be doing anything. Yep. You know, incredible. It's just Wandering through your neighborhood, yep. unplugging the earbuds, listening to the sounds, saying hello to your neighbor, paying attention to someone's beautiful rose bush, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just that act of being present right. that's the powerful thing. On that nature piece, too, we don't need to immerse ourselves in like a national park to get the benefits of right. being in nature. It can be as simple as sitting under the one tree on your street yep. and looking at the bark and looking at the leaves and looking at the shadows for five minutes it has an impact. I mean, if we spend, if, we, if we're able to find 30 minutes a week to go into a park nearby, that has a benefit to our immune system and our mental health for six weeks. 30 minutes crazy, gives us six weeks of benefit. So I think that's, that's really important. And the other thing that you mentioned before was technology, right? And I know this is one of your zones of genius, how we mindfully engage with technology in this world where we feel like we have to respond to texts like immediately instantly. and we need to be on top of our email like inbox zero is a thing that we feel like we need to do I do not feel like I need to do <laughs> inbox zero, just so you know <laughs> but social media and all of these yeah. other things how can we turn it into a tool rather than turn it into like a comfort blanket or a a crutch.
2: Yeah, all these things were designed not to be replacements. So text messaging was supposed to help people when they couldn't actually get on a phone call or they were working in an area where reception wasn't good. It wasn't supposed to be a replacement for human conversation. (laughs) And now we're starting to see the negative effects from it becoming replacements, which is people are sadder, lonelier, more isolated because you texting me, LOL does not have the same (laughs) literal biological boost as me hearing you laugh (laughs) on the phone, right? Right. So um, it's kind of, the technology is kind of like catching smoke with your hands. It's, we can't study it fast enough because it upgrades and shifts so quickly that the things that we're learning now is really outdated and based on technology five years ago. And so for me, I try and think of it not like an anti-smoking campaign, like tech is bad and you Mm. should not use it, and I'm a Luddite. But similar to Ralph Nader, the crusader, who realized that cars without safety and rules and laws and age restrictions could be dangerous. We're kind of in that phase right now with technology. The digital revolution, we're in the first day, the first five seconds of the digital revolution. We can't possibly understand where this is going to go. Just in the past five years, you see how much it's shifted. Mm -hmm. What's important is we start to determine what works for us and voice that to our government, voice that to our schools, our businesses. This tech is just, it's one-click capitalism. There's a lot of people making money off of your eyeballs and awareness and attention. So self-regulation is key. Mm -hmm. So even as we shift from screens to contact lenses or artificial intelligence or VR, it doesn't really matter what the tech is. It's your decision and how you want to use it. So we can advocate for suggestions for Ages? Mm -hmm. Should it be allowed in schools? Just because it is 24 7 and people all over the world can email you at any time, is that appropriate? I had a career before all of this happened and you couldn't take the fax machine home with you at the end (laughs) of the day. So you got to have time and have a meal with your family and feel re re energized and process how the day went and come up with new ideas before you went back into the office the Mm -hmm. next day. Um, So Really, I'm just advocating for having this conversation that um, these weren't meant to be replacements and how they're currently used now isn't the best way. We need those seat belts, we need the stop signs. Right, exactly.
0: And I think it's just, it's happened so quickly that people haven't even realized that that they don't exist until we're so desperately in need of them. For me, it's about boundaries as well and creating boundaries at work around tech. Um, My family have screen-free bedrooms, like that's a thing that we, we experimented with about 18 months ago and it was the most instructive experiment I've ever done. We, I didn't realize how much time I would waste on my phone in bed until I removed the phone from my bed. Like I would go to bed, like I'd be ready for bed, I'm tired, I brush my teeth, you know, I've washed my face, I get in bed, just a last flick through Instagram, you know, just a last check of my emails. Where's my head then? My head is not ready for sleep, my head is not ready to rest or to dream or to read a book. I'm flicking through the holiday photos of someone I went to high school with. That's not fulfilling in any capacity. It's actually harmful. It is, exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then in the morning, I would wake up, my alarm was my phone and it was right here next to my bed. So of course I'd pick it up and the first thing I would do, my muscle memory would flick me over into Instagram or Facebook or email. And I wouldn't do anything with that information. I would just let it sit in my head before I literally even got out of bed. I wouldn't answer my emails. i just know that they were there. I wouldn't do anything on Instagram other than and scroll. So removing the screens from our bedrooms made a huge impact. And then honoring and protecting those boundaries yeah. is the most important thing. And that means that if I hear a text go off at 10 p.m. and I'm in bed, it stays there. I don't get up because if if, I think what we, we have failed to realize as we wanted to be more responsive was that by responding to those emails right, at 11 p.m., exactly, the expectation is from our boss or our colleague or our best friend that next time they send an email at 11.30, we will respond. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we aren't our own advocates for time offline, no one's going to do it for us. No, no one is going to stand up and, and say, hey, you need, you need a, a day off Instagram. You need a day off your phone. So, the other thing that we do is um, have a 24-hour period on the weekends completely offline. Usually from lunchtime Saturday to lunchtime Sunday works for us. That applies to all of us and that applies to my two kids and my husband and myself uh, and that applies to all screens and it is so wonderful. It really is the most beautiful time to just walk or play board games or sleep or read, watch movies together. I think that that's a really clear example of how boundaries can work in creating space, like you said, for thought and critical thought and creativity and sorting through things that have happened during the week and giving ourselves the space to to deal with it and process it. You have
2: to. Well, you do. Some of the best ideas in history were created in the bathroom because that's where you would go and be alone with your thoughts. And now. There, uh, you take your, well, this is a horrible stat, but it's true. If you look to your left and you look to your right, one of the three of you actually have feces on your phone right now because you're taking it to the bathroom with you um, and you're not allowing your brain that time. It's true, I promise you. <laughs>
0: there's um, no one on this
2: side, so we're good. <laughs> um, But no, there's an etiquette piece that is really missing. Um, I don't know about your homes growing up, but if somebody called my house after 9 p.m. at night, My mother, you were on the bad list for the next three (laughs) decades. It was just this thing that was not allowed before 9 a.m. or after 9 p.m. Right. And now, Just this stuff is always available and so people can send interruption bombs, is what I call them, demanding a response at any time of day or night. And they don't know what you're doing. They don't know if you're with an ailing family member. They don't know if you're on a date. They don't know if your child has just fallen and you're dealing with that. But they expect your response. And then, you know, the etiquette goes and rolls into so many other things. You know, while we're having a meal, just having a phone on the table not across from anyone, but off to the side flipped over is shortening conversations by over 15 minutes because your brain knows that there's something there that needs your attention. And so you're, you're editing yourself. Right. So. Right. And it's through those like, long rambling conversations.
0: Yeah. The way we began our conversation, like, that's where we develop stronger relationships. That's where yeah. we turn up for people. If we give people the opportunity to have the rambling conversations and dig a little deeper. That's where things really... The yumminess happens. Exactly. And that's where it matters. I mean, that's where our relationships are strengthened and our neighborhoods and our communities and so on, you know, but it's giving ourselves that time. For sure. Now, one thing that I wanted to ask you about, because I have a very strong opinion on it, is this idea of balance, work-life balance. What, what's your take on it?
2: Well, I think that... I think currently it's mm. a bag of goods, it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, it was probably something that people had good intentions a decade ago, a few decades oh. ago, but again, like many things don't live up to our current modern society and what our intentions were. Um, I have talked about this a lot, like, you know, specifically from a one's perspective, we can have it all. Um, <laughs> the, our, our, our bra-burning sisters of the past wanted us to have these choices and wanted us to have it all, but I don't think that they realized what having it all meant all at once. Um, And so, no, I don't really think that
0: it exists. I I don't think it exists. I think it's a myth. I think we've been sold this idea of work-life balance. Like, if you could just work a little harder, if you could just get a little less sleep, if you could just try a bit more, then you can have it all. At what cost? You know, I mean, I I know so many people who are just burning out, trying to be everything to everyone and failing because it's not possible. And then self-flagellating through our 20s and 30s because we're we're not living up to this magazine version of what life should look like. Mm -hmm. I genuinely spent years thinking that that I was a failure because my life didn't look like this person who was able to get their stuff sorted, you know. And I kind of liken it to sitting or balancing on a one-legged stool, right? There might be one, one second, one day, where you're able to balance yourself properly on top of this stool, and you're upright for a second. But you're not having any fun when you're doing it. I mean, all of your energy goes into staying upright.
2: Yeah.
0: Why would we do that to ourselves? So I, I advocate for the exact opposite of balance. And I'm talking about daily balance, you know, the day, like, some expectation that at the end of the day we're like, nailed it nailed it all, got it all done, mind, body, spirit, work, whatever else, nailed it. Like, it doesn't happen. But I advocate for this idea of tilting, tilting all the way into, as you were saying, what we're doing right now and at the same time as giving our energy to our work or to the email that we're writing or to playing with our child or to having a conversation with someone we love, acknowledging that all the other things in our lives, that, yeah, they're important, we're not doing them. And when we acknowledge that, we let go of the guilt of not doing those things at the same time because I think it's the guilt that gets us. I think it's the expectation that somehow we should be doing more that gets us. So we tilt all the way in. And my my tilt changes dozens of times a day, but I, I will tilt into answering my emails for 30 minutes and then I'll tilt into hanging out with my kids. And the thing is, people know when you're phoning it in. People know when you're multitasking on them, even if you're looking at them. If you're not quite there, if you're kind of headwriting that email that you need to send, if you're thinking about the meeting that's coming mm-hmm. up, if I'm trying to cook dinner and play with my kids, I'll probably half ignore my kids and burn dinner. <laughs> <laughs> right. We just, I just don't think that we're cut out for constant multitasking. So we tilt. Instead, And I think that the idea of balance is not necessarily a a problem if we view it over six months rather than a day. So I like to ask myself every three or four months, how do I feel about the main elements of my life across the board over the past few months? Do I feel like everything that's important to me has gotten the energy and time it deserves over those four months? And if the answer is yes, then great. And if the answer is no, and usually that's like a pang in my gut, you know, no, I haven't called my mum enough, no, I haven't spent enough time with my friends, no, I haven't given enough time to self-care or, you know, self-reflection or becoming a better person, then that's when I know I need to do a little better in that area. And you think about ways you can bring that in by letting go of something else. But I think balance on a day-to-day basis, just let it go. Throw it out the window. Throw it out the window. Put it in the bucket bucket. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So I'm curious if if anyone has any questions, actually, based on, on our conversation so far. This idea of slow living is an interesting one. And I was talking to you a couple of days ago about how it's morphed into this movement that has a particular aesthetic. I think that's kind of damaging the movement mm-hmm. because we see what it looks like on Instagram, right? Slow living on Instagram might look like living in the country. It might look like van life. It might look like wandering through the woods wearing hemp clothes or <laughs> growing all our own veggies or, you know, hand-ground grains for our sourdough that we bake or whatever it is, you know. And it, it can if that's important to you, but it doesn't have to. Right. So I don't know. Has anyone got any questions about slow living in a non-slow world. I have a thought. Mm. Um, I think of slow living as micro-movements throughout your day. Wherever you can attempt to just be fully present, even if it's three minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it is, but really, really being there for that amount of time. Right, exactly. And being there, it takes practice. Yeah. I don't and know if... That space too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I think the world does a very good job of giving us loads of distraction options, but we do a very good job of, distract, of using them, you know, to get away from uncomfortable things, from silence, from boredom, from feelings that we don't want to feel, from memories that we don't want to face up to, whatever it is. We're really good at distracting ourselves away from them. So I think, like, a minute... I started with 30 seconds, you know, of of mindfulness practice when I was spending time with my psychiatrist. She said, just spend 30 seconds paying attention to each of your senses once a day and see. And I couldn't believe the difference that something so simple, just a simple body scan made because it was that practice, that micro moment. I like that word, that micro moment, because they add up. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they really do. Exactly, and I think that's the problem, this all or nothing mentality. It's like you're either living like a slow life or you're failing at it and you're living a fast life. I don't know anyone who's able to do, I mean, and you know what, I wouldn't want to be that person either. I enjoy having a deadline, I enjoy being busy. I just don't enjoy feeling frantic and feeling like time is out of my control. Yeah, micro moments, I like that. I have a question for
2: you. Oh no, you go ahead. Uh, I'm new to you, and so please forgive me if you address this in the book, which I haven't read yet. That's fine. Uh, But I've listened to a couple episodes of your podcast, and you, in passing, said um, you've you commented on when people have asked you what to do if everybody in your life is not on board with Mm -hmm. such a movement, and you're. I've heard you say in those few episodes I've listened to. Uh, the, my short answer is you can't. There's nothing you can do if that person's on a bird. You can't force somebody into it. But right. what does that practically look like in your life? If you live in a, I mean, I have two small kids. Mm-hmm. I have a husband who doesn't put his phone down for one second ever. Right. I mean, the, like, it, what does it actually look like if right. you don't have somebody who's all in on the same thing that you're trying to do?
0: Right. My husband was not all in. Um,
2: at all, The idea of a screen-free right. room in our place is laughable. I, to me, I, I would love it, but I don't see how I could possibly right. implement such a thing.
0: Yeah, and I think that's, that's kind of what I was getting at before. It's that we can't get from zero to 100 when it took us a long time to get to that zero place. Um, we're not going to be able to shift it immediately. Um, but my husband was not on board, so I made a decision pretty early on to not even broach it with him really. Um, I knew that if I tried to drag him into this new lifestyle that I thought was going to be my saving grace, that um, he would resent me. And I think I was right. So I dealt with my own stuff first. It was really, it was very convenient for me to say that it's not actually me that's the problem here. It's my kids. It's my husband. But once I forced myself to just deal with my own crap first, I discovered that I had a lot of it and physical, yes, but also mental and emotional um, stuff that I needed to sort through. I had my work cut out for me for years before I even needed to worry about his. So for me, it was just worrying about myself and quietly enjoying the benefits that I was starting to enjoy uh, and they were things like just more physical, more physical, physically more space in my wardrobe, for example, less dusting to do, you know, we had half a day extra on the weekends because I didn't have to clean the house on the weekend. Those sorts of things were benefits that I just enjoyed. And then one day my husband came home and I was like dancing in the kitchen or something. I was happy beyond any kind of happiness I had had for years and he asked me if I joined a cult. <laughs> <laughs> Um, He's like, not that I mind, because whatever you're doing is working, but are you okay? (laughs) And that was the first time, I think, that he'd even really recognised the benefits that I had been enjoying for a while. And he didn't change for a while after that, but then it was this very gradual realisation that I was enjoying benefits that were appealing to him. So I came home one Saturday morning, and he'd removed most of his clothes from the wardrobe because he realised that he had about three times more than I did, (laughs) and he was... Partly embarrassed and partly just like the space. And that was the first time that he had kind of gotten on board with any of it. And then it was also introducing him to the ideas of slow living indirectly. Because I feel like if people, even if our intentions are as positive as they could possibly be, if they hear it from us, hey, you should try this, you should try that, we get defensive. You know, our immediate reaction is to get defensive. Or to feel judged, and that's not kind of a, that's not going to build their desire to change. So it was also finding media, um, a documentary, a podcast episode, a um, you know an Instagram post or something from someone else that introduces a small element of slow living in a way that would resonate with them. So I'd been writing about slow living for a couple of years, and my husband and I watched this documentary series uh, about all about slow living and frantic families, and you know, this this guy kind of helped people simplify their frantic family life. And at the end of the series, Ben looked at me, he's like, this guy's really onto something. (laughs) 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 And that was also just a, a small part of the puzzle. And what I realized years down the track was that it was just all of these micro moments of him realizing that there were benefits to what I was doing that were going to benefit him as well as the rest of the family. And I know people look at where we're at now, because he, he used to work in a corporate job. He'd leave home at five, he'd get home at eight. His life was so opposite to mine that it, was, it seems like he would never get on board. And he's now self-employed. And the balance is well and truly back into a healthy kind of place. But had you said to him five years ago that that's what it would look like, he would have laughed at you. He's like, there's literally no way, because for him it was an impossibility. And it was just the gentle conversations, living with the example that I was, you know, I was being and not pushing it that led to it. But I think not being afraid to have conversations, but also not preaching or pushing is really what it, what it has kind of looked like. And it's, it's tough, it's really hard. And there will, be, there will be a point where you need to have that conversation, but it doesn't need to be straight away. I think there's a lot that we can do personally to look after our own stuff and to benefit everyone else indirectly um, and use that as a great place to, to begin because then you've got proof. You're like, hey, this does work because of these reasons.
2: Brooke, just as in regards to how you started, it was mostly the decluttering. It was, and, yes. And then what was after that? Like, what was right. the next thing? So um, I decluttered for about a year and then
0: I, I started to dip into this mindfulness idea and that was another great place for me to start changing because I didn't need anyone else. All I needed was 30 seconds in the bathroom or in the car or once the kids had gone to bed. And that was, again, enough for me to start shifting in ways that were benefiting myself and other people. Um, and the mindfulness thing was interesting because I was very sceptical of it. I'm like, what's that going to do? What, what could that possibly do to my mental health? But it was phenomenal, the, the shift that it, it made because it was just giving me time and space to think about things in a different way, to notice things, to pay attention, to be present. And that was really when I, I recognised that slow living had nothing to do with decluttering. It had nothing to do with being a minimalist. Like it can, it can go hand in hand, but it doesn't have to because it's about showing up. And it was when I found myself actually playing with my kids for the first time, which makes me sad to say, but I, I just wasn't the mum who played with my kids. Uh, and when I, I found myself actually playing with them and the joy that that brought them and me, I realised that that was because I had just learnt how to pay attention. Um, so that mindfulness was sad. the next one. Sorry. That makes it me sad. Makes me yeah. sad too. It was it was awful. I remember my daughter asked me every day to play hide and seek and I would always say no. She was about four. And I realised one day she was used to me saying no. So she didn't get upset. She didn't have a tantrum or anything like that. She just walked away. She's like, oh, mum said no again. And that that was the realization that broke my heart, that she was used to me saying no, that no had been my default. So I went and found her and asked her if she wanted to play hide and seek. And I will never forget the look on her face. It was, she was just overjoyed that I had made time for her when I was the one who, you know, should have been delighted she wanted to make time for me. But um, yeah, so I think small things, looking after our our own actions uh, in the the beginning. Did you
2: have a question? I did. Mm. Um, the guilt thing that we talked about. Right. How do you, when people aren't on board and you're deciding to tilt into one thing and ignore essentially all these other things, how do you overcome the guilt that comes with that? Because I do that, I very much choose not to respond to 80 emails and only respond to five Mm -hmm. because they're the most important or whatever or I choose to ignore. The example I gave was my father who calls me like 15 times a day, but I'm like distracted and trying to be with my son and I said, I'll call you tomorrow and I can speak to you for 20 minutes and he was offended and I was trying to explain to him that I wanted to give him my attention fully and I would do it in the future, but I still felt bad about it. I felt bad about his reaction. I feel bad about the people who keep emailing me that I don't respond to. So how do you overcome the guilt?
0: It's not, it's not easy. Um, And I think explaining why you're doing what you're doing can go a certain ways to alleviate it. But also, this is where I found meditation surprisingly helpful. Because what meditation taught me was not how to be a Zen master or anything like that. That's what I assumed. But it, um, it taught me how to recognize my thoughts, but not react to them. And I treat guilt much the same now. I recognize that I feel guilt. For not responding to those emails, but then I realize that the reason I haven't responded to them is sound, and the reason I haven't responded to them is based in my why—the things that are important. And yeah, if the days were 36 hours long, great—I'd get everything done. But they're not, you know. And every day is about how we choose to prioritize our time. And at the end of the day, at the end of the year, at the end of our lives, are we going to lament the emails that we didn't respond to, or are we going to lament the times that we didn't play with our kids? You know, and. I understand the point with people who aren't on board, they don't get it. They don't want to hear that. But the reality is we can't be everything to everyone at all times. So we just need to know that when we show up for your dad, when you get on the phone, you talk to him for half an hour, that matters so much more than five distracted conversations where you don't actually get into it, Mm -hmm. you know, where you don't really listen to him when he tells you how he is or what's going on or he doesn't get a chance to ask you how you are or hear your response because you're doing three different things at the same time. So I think that our guilt is tied up in, again, this desire to be everything to everyone at all times and our frustration at not being able to do that. And I think that if we get a bit of perspective on it and understand that we're doing things with good reason that will matter in the long run, it's not going to alleviate it completely, but it at least makes it feel like... A better choice. That's how I doubt that. Right, I will. <laughs> but I mean, not to belabor a point, but that's, it's really difficult. When you've got people who aren't on board, they don't want really to hear it at all. Um, that makes it really tough. And I think that it's also telling of our relationships because relationships are about compromise, they're about give and take. Like strong, healthy ones are. And there's always going to be times where there's tension. But I always. Think that a relationship should be able to withstand that give and take, that ebb and flow, and also withstand the conversation that is required for understanding across both parties. I mean, for you to sit down with your dad, for example, and say, Hey, I'd love to be able to talk to you every day, but these are the reasons that I can't. What if we make and ritualize it, make it something really special? Every Sunday morning we get on the phone, I've got a coffee, you've got a coffee, we talk. We just talk about it for the week. And see if that then elevates it to something because you know I also think that we're grasping because we're not ever getting fulfillment out of those interactions. Totally. Because we're all distracted, because we're all kind of doing two things at once. What if, what would it feel like if we both turned up for 30 minutes a week? Would that be enough? Would we then stop calling 15 times a day and I'm sorry that happens. I don't know, we'll
2: see. I'm gonna update you. Yeah please do. Hoping my dad doesn't listen to this podcast when it goes (laughs) off. I just his (laughs) dad. How are we going for time? Oh, you get
0: the time. Mm -hmm. I gotta
2: ask questions. Please. Um, Something that I find very interesting is I have a lot of friends. Let's say midterms, final
0: week
1: come, Mm -hmm. they're like, yeah, I gotta delete my Facebook. I'm like, delete. Right. Like people are going that far. Right. Deleting their Facebooks. There's
0: like these new. Boxes that you can lock your phones in mm-hmm. and set like a timer for half an hour, and it huh. can't open until the timer is over. Like that's how bad it is that right. you have to put your phone in a safe.
2: <laughs> yes, because be. people are well. addicted. Right, I bet you know. I bet they sell well. Yeah, it's it's addiction. I mean, people don't want to use that word around technology. It's an accepted drug right now. Right. Um, the more you use it without boundaries and a sense of balance and self-regulation, the more addicted you become and then it becomes, you don't know why you're sitting there not sleeping, exactly. uncontrollable, urging, first thing in the morning, ignoring your child. Then you become addicted to the idea of being busy or uh-huh. the self-importance of how many emails you responded to. So. Um, I actually deleted my Facebook. I have a very healthy relationship with my technology now compared to where I was because of the extreme burnout that I experienced from it, thus started my whole new career path that I didn't expect I'd be on. I recently quit it and maybe like three weeks ago, just as we were walking in here, my staff was trying to call me, my team. They wanted to do a post on Facebook and they realized that the Facebook page had disappeared because I had deleted my personal account. And I was like, sorry, I'm not turning it back on. They're like, we have to turn it back on to figure it out. And for me, it wasn't necessarily the time that I was spending on it. It was um, the uncontrol of what was in my newsfeed Mm. that was just, stimulating me and stimulating me and making me outraged and making me this and making me that and I didn't have control over it and no matter how many times they tell you you do and you can change it you don't and I have So I deleted it and then ironically put it on Instagram so everyone would know that I was no longer on Facebook. (laughs) And uh, one of my friends heads up um, partnerships at Facebook and two other friends also work there. And they're like, you'll be back. Why didn't you cancel Instagram? Everyone was so offended by my choice. But I'll tell you what, it's been really amazing in creating that space and being able to own how I feel throughout my day. So it was less about the addiction. um, But there are a lot of people that this is a real problem. Mm -hmm. I became totally addicted to my technology five years ago and just very quickly I was really unwell and I didn't know what it was from. I had this uh, general feeling of malaise, disassociation, brain fog, memory loss. I was a digital strategist forever and communicating on behalf of brands digitally early back before everyone is now doing it. And would go and see these different doctors and neurologists, and no one could figure out what was wrong with my brain. I went to Hawaii, where my sister lives, and when we landed, my family forced a digital detox on me back before this was even really a word. And said, like, you suck as a human, as a mother, as a wife, and like, we're not doing this with you for two weeks. And give me your laptop, give me your iPad, give me your this, give me your that. And so I did, and eight days later, it was like someone flipped a switch on my brain, and I felt like my 18-year-old self. I was clear, I was present, I was alert, I was, creativity was flowing, my writing, everything, and I came back to New York and reached out to all these people who were a lot smarter than I, futurist scientists, doctors, and said, I think I scrambled my brain. And they said they don't call it that. There's actually not really a word, which now they've just coined the term digital dementia this year. And so they said I was an overuser and an early adopter, and that was my experience. And so I, be, my whole point of all of this is I became that addicted. I didn't have a cell phone until I was 21. I didn't use the internet for business until I was 25, 26 years old. I'm not even 40 yet. I'm gonna be 40 at the end of this year. I can say that out
0: loud. And,
2: um, <laughs> I can't imagine what it's gonna be like for these next generations. And so it's up to everyone in this room to kind of teach them what's okay, what's not okay, what it could be like, what it should be like because they don't know any better, they don't know any different. And so that's why I started my company and that's why there's these tools out there now of locking your phone away because they can't help themselves um, or people are just fully opting out of these platforms because it's uncontrollable controllable for mm. them now. That was the thing uh, that
0: really shifted it for me uh, a couple of years ago when I realized there is an entire industry of people whose job it is is to keep us on our phones. Like, they create these apps that are addictive. They create these um, notifications that tap in to parts of our brain that that virtually require, exactly, that they require us to check. Like, that might be someone important. Oh, someone likes me, I feel validated. And it really, it really does impact our behaviors. Mm -hmm. And that really pissed me off when I realized there is a whole industry of people out there working against to reprogram My you. time. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. To reprogram and rewire you. And I use that, that anger as motivation. Same. When I find myself falling down that rabbit hole, which doesn't happen nearly as often as it used to, um, I use that as motivation to just put the thing down. I mean, there's apps that you can use that block your access to all things on your phone other than making or receiving a call. That's a great place to start because what it then teaches us is how often we go to reach for it in those moments of discomfort when we're writing an email and we're not quite sure of the wording. So we're like, okay, I'm on my computer, but I'm going to grab my phone over here and do something else because I'm distracting myself away from discomfort. Um, I'm frustrated. I'm sad. I, I'm bored. I don't like the thoughts that I'm noticing in my head. I'm going to go do something with it. We're terrified
2: of what happens in the silence. So we keep grabbing our phones. And, and everyone's usage is more than they think. Exactly. Have you guys heard of, do you use the Moment app? Um, No, but I have before. Okay. Yeah, it terrified me. So I just told you I have a very healthy relationship with my technology, and so I downloaded this three months ago as a gut check, and the first report that came back was that I was on my phone for over four hours that day, and I was like, what? <laughs> I don't have time to go to the gym, but I have four hours right. on my phone and I have a good relationship. Right. So it's a great, it's terrifying, but it's called the Moment app. Put it on your phone. It's a nice place to start to see how you spend yeah, your time. Exactly. And I also like that, um, that weighing up I don't have
0: time to go to the gym, but I somehow have wasted four hours on my phone. I mean, that's a really good place to start as well. What are the things that we say we don't have time for? We don't have time to hang out with our friends, we don't have time to go to the library, we don't have time All to, bad. to time. <laughs> um, We don't have time for any of that stuff. So why don't we say, okay, I'm saying yes, okay? Sorry. That's okay. I'm saying yes to technology and as a result I'm having to say no to these things that are important to me. What if we flip that? What if I say yes to the things that are important to me and say no to technology? Because every time we say yes to something, we're being forced to say no to something or some things else. And I think why don't we balance that out with things that are actually important to us rather than things that are designed by thousands of very clever developers and engineers to keep us from doing stuff. That's not their goal. Their goal is just to get us to use their app to look at their ads, to do whatever it is that makes the money. But the end result is that we're not not doing the things that are important to us. Thank you all so much for being with us. Thank you. (laughs) you.
1: Who is that? Hi, Pass.